You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right, well, uh, the person reading scripture for us today is Patty Morris. She's one of our Grace missionaries, and she is completing uh, her term of service at the end of this year. After 40 years as a missionary in France, she's earning a well-deserved retirement. So, Patty, thanks for being here this morning. If you'd like to know more about Patty or hear more about her reflections on her time serving God overseas, uh, the Mission Commission will have a lunch in the choral room after the service day, and they would love to have you join them. All right, well, as Chris, Pastor Chris mentioned, we are going through Acts, and we're looking at the theme of unity and what it means that we would be together as a community of faith in Jesus' name. And today we're going to talk about how that unity expresses itself in generosity, because you just can't talk about what it means to be unified, for the early church to be unified in Acts, without talking about the financial part of it and how generosity was a necessary part of their unity and a beautiful part of their unity. The passage we're going to look at today in Acts 4 is going to sound a little familiar if you were here last week. A lot of the same themes come up, a lot of the same language is used. Uh, Last week, you might remember in Acts 2, uh, Luke talks about how the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And they shared together, they were generous with one another, and they saw all these people come to the Lord. Here in Acts 4, he's going to kind of zero in just on one part of that. He's going to talk about how there were no needy among them, how they were generous with one another, how they shared all their positions together, and how that played out in Barnabas' life in particular. Now, some of you are, it's just dawning on you that we're talking about money today. And you're like, where is the door? I want to get out of here. That's all the church seems to care about is money. Why is it that every few years when I come, they talk about money? Um, the church is such a racket. And, and I get why, maybe none of you are thinking that. Maybe that's just in my head. All week, I've been sort of like rattling around in my brain all the objections that come out in our culture around talking about religion and money. Um, and, you know, with some good reason, there's certainly a lot of people who in God's name, have taken God's name in vain in the way that they've talked about money and their own um, making themselves rich off of, and profiteering off of the message of the gospel. And so there is some good reason why we're kind of all hesitant to talk about this. Also, we're in a materialistic society where uh, we're kind of inundated from childhood that money is a sign of value and wealth and significance and meaning and success. And so there's a lot of other things sort of tied up with this discussion of money. Uh, But I do want to sort of promise you one thing as we talk about this. My goal is not to sort of crescendo to some big giving appeal. This is not the Sunday we bring back the offering plates. Um, I thought that was funny. So thank you to the one person who, who laughed at that. But I, I am actually after something much more significant, which is your heart. Like what I want for you at the end of this is that you would look at this depiction of a community that was generous to one another, that was interdependent on one another, that met one another's needs, and whose well-being was tied to one another. And my goal is at the end of this, you would say, I want that. Like, I want to be part of that sort of community. I want to commit myself to, to pursuing a life that is not uh, autonomous and self-centered, but rather is part of a community that cares for one another. So let's get into it here in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. If this is your first time here or you just aren't a numbers person, just a quick 
reminder of what it means, the full number. Remember in Acts 1, there was 120 disciples after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that were in the upper room together when the Spirit came. Peter gives his first message in Acts 2. It says 3,000 believed that day. So the church went from 120 to 3,120, or thereabout. Let's assume they were doing some estimating. Um, and then in Acts 4, uh, Peter, is, Peter and John have done a miracle. They've been arrested. There's this big kerfuffle. He gives another major sermon that Pastor Chris mentioned, and about 5,000 more, I believe. So uh, we now are up to 8,120, or if we want to round it off, 9,000, or if you want to round it off in church pastor numbers, probably, probably 20,000. Um, <laughs> you laugh at that one. All right, all right, I see how to, oh, <laughs> hit too close to home. Uh, but what's remarkable is that this description that they are of one heart and soul. How on earth could 8,000 people be of one heart and soul? Some of you are married and you're like, there's one person and I'm having trouble being of one heart and soul, right? Um, or maybe you have a few people in your life that you're really close to, close friends, uh, parents, kids, people in your life group, and you think like, maybe we can kind of get on the same page with like four or five or six people. How do you get on one heart and soul with 8,000 people? What, is this even possible or is Luke just sort of speaking hyperbolically? Well, I think the only reason that this is possible is because it's been established by God, right? That, that when we talk about the unity of the church, we're not talking about our conviviality or our sense of camaraderie or how much we like each other or what we agree on. When we confess that the church is unified, we're confessing a theological doctrine that God has established this by his work. So when it says they were of one heart and soul, it doesn't mean that they all looked the same, acted the same, were clones of one another, seemed like they all had come off an assembly line. No, what Luke is saying is that their passions, their purpose, who they are in Christ was established in the same way by God. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were all called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and in all and through all. When we talk about the unity of the church, we're talking about what God has done and what we get a part, what we get to participate in, not what we accomplish on our own. And look at how the unity of the church plays out at the end of verse 32. It says, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is a, a beautiful description of, of a negative and a positive, right? That no one clutched and grabbed onto the things that, and said, mine, but rather they said, this is for all of us to share. There's this negation that, that they don't insist on having their own way. And then there's this positive attribute of, but they in included others in the camaraderie and in the common fellowship of what they owned. This phrase that it was common to all, that's the Greek word koine, uh, the word common. It's where we get our where we get the word fellowship from that we talked about last week, koinonia, that they, they hold things together. Um, this is an important distinction to make, right? Often we think of mine and yours. And we think of giving, we think of it goes from being mine to being yours. If I sell a car and I sign the pink slip, it goes from being mine to being yours. And, and you are responsible for what's going on with the transmission now, right? And it's not mine anymore. This is different there, right? This is not from mine to yours. This is from mine to ours. That's what uh, is being described in the early church. That instead of me signing off the pink slip and it now becomes yours, and it's your problem and your solution, depending on the situation, this becomes our problem and our solution. 
This is different than how, for example, the Franciscans talked about the vow of poverty, right? In the Franciscan tradition, the vow of poverty is I give all my things away to the poor and then I live in poverty. And maybe in community with the other brothers in poverty, but I live in poverty. That's different than what is being described here in Luke 4, in Acts 4. Nothing against the vow of poverty. If you want to take one, that's amazing. But that's different than what's going on here. This is a vow of community, a vow of going into a church where we care for one another's needs. And the result of this, it says, is that no one was in need. This is a realization of, of the ideal that God had for his people in Deuteronomy 15. Back in the Old Testament, when God established the law, this is how he described to Israel that their community would be known. Deuteronomy 15.7 says, If among you, one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. If you jump down to verse 11, it says, There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, not, so don't worry about it, and said, therefore, I command you, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. This was the hope of the Old Testament, that, that God's people would care for one another and that they would not let uh, their brothers struggle in poverty, but that they would reach out and be generous and have generous hearts to one another. Now in the new Israel, in the new covenant that Jesus established, not based on a nation, but based on himself and based on his people, the same sort of reality is coming to fruition, right? That there's no needy among the church because they lend and care for one another and provide for one another. Now, my hands are going in my pockets because this is when all my objections start coming up in my head. Like, well, how does that work? When people stop working, that doesn't seem very realistic. People should be responsible for their actions and on and on and on and on. Maybe you have some of those same objections too. Um, and you think, could this actually play out? Could this even work? Would this work today? And then all of a sudden, I start getting all these economic concerns. Like, does this work with supply side? And all of a sudden, I care about economics when I didn't a few minutes ago. Right? <laughs> so let me ask you, what's going on in your heart and my heart that all of a sudden we're worried about that? It, it could be genuine concern. It could be genuine uh, hesitations about how that would work. Or it could be selfishness. Or it could be some combination of both, right? The first issue we see here is how the believers see their possessions, right? Before we talk about whether it works, look at the heart these first believers had. They did not consider these things to be mine, right? But they were quick to be generous with those around them. Before we talk at all about generosity, before we talk about what you or I are going to do or should do or whatever, there's the question of how you see your position in this world. Is it mine? Or are we stewards of what God has given us? Uh, the individual has a choice, certainly, in how to be generous. But this generosity becomes an issue of the heart. And generosity always flows from the inside out. This is different than guilt. You know, sometimes churches talk about money from the lens of guilt. And we say, don't you feel bad? Don't you feel bad about what a sinner you are? Don't you feel bad about all these people working harder? You should put money in the offering plate. And I can't even use my normal voice to do that because it sounds so pathetic. Right? Guilt is such a poor motivator, but this is generosity that comes out of a heart, a deep heart of gratitude for his work in our life. All right, well, we're already talking about money. Let's talk about politics too. Um, <laughs> why am I doing this? <laughs> no, I, I know why I'm doing this. So this passage is held up by both the left and the right at times to talk about whether the government should, in what way the government should be involved in um, aiding the poor 
in our, in our country today, in our society today. And on one side, you'll have the argument will say, see, this is evidence that we need high tax rates on the rich and they need to give over what they have in order to benefit the poor so that there's no need in the land. See, it's right there in Acts 4. I, I, sorry, I don't see that there in Acts 4. In Acts 4, what we see is a voluntary choice for individuals to give of their own free will to help others, not a governmental coercion of taxation. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, yeah, amen to that, right? <laughs> Before you get too happy with me. Uh, <laughs> on the other side, here's how this passage is used. This passage is used and said, see, look, it's an individual choice. That means a government shouldn't ever redistribute wealth from the rich to the poor. It's not the government's role. It's the church's role. It says that right there in the Bible. Nope, it doesn't say that either. This pa- what does this passage say about the government? Nothing. <laughs> it does not talk about the government in this passage, right? It doesn't say the government should tax or shouldn't tax. It doesn't say that it's the government's role to redistribute wealth or to not redistribute wealth. It doesn't talk about the government. It talks about you and me and our hearts before God. Uh, so what does this mean for the midterm elections, for the next presidential election, for all the propositions you and I will vote for in the next few months? Should the government actively try to create a level financial playing field by taxing the rich to redistribute wealth to the poor? And if it should, how should it do it? I don't think you're going to find a biblical argument in this passage, right? But what I do think you'll find, before I just say that was a waste of the last five minutes, what I do think you'll find is what matters is your heart. Do you have a heart of generosity or do you have a heart of stinginess? Is your desire to help or your desire to prove that you get to keep what's yours? Because I don't know how the election is going to go this fall, but spoiler alert, the advertisers are going to appeal to your lowest instincts on both the left and the right. They're going to appeal to your senses of entitlement, your senses of resentment, your senses of fear of others, a fear of missing out. There are going to be ads that are literally going to say, you shouldn't have to worry about this. This is not your problem. It's their fault, right? All those things are going to appeal to our sinful nature on the left and on the right. And what I hope in this church is that we can be a church that's unified, that believes the best about one another, and that, is, uh, that believes in each other's heart of generosity for those around us. Some of you believe in good Christian conscience that uh, the best way to help the poor is through supply-side economics, through corporate tax cuts, and through a, a system of uh, conservative, laissez-faire capitalism, okay? Others of you, in good Christian conscience, believe that the best way to help the poor is through uh, increasing tax rates, increasing social services, and direct care mediated through governmental organizations. Which one's the Christian view? Well, it depends what of your Christian faith you're bringing to it. And it depends what of your flesh and sinful nature you're bringing to it. Uh, our church is not going to take one side or the other on economic political policy, what we are going to take the side of is that you and I are loved by God, we're made in God's image, and that our heart's desire is to serve him and worship him and and believe the best about one another in that process. Now, if you really want to talk to me about economic policy and politics, uh, you can email me because you're going to anyway about this. So um, (laughs) I look forward to all your YouTube links to the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street and all the rest, right? (laughs) All right, that's... All right, we got to keep going. All right. Why why do I... Why am I talking about it? Why do I care so much about this? I care about this because I do really believe that generosity is an indicator of light for your heart. Like, I think what you and I spend our money on, 
reveals where our heart is and it dictates where our heart is. You know why I feel so strong about that? Because Jesus literally said that, right? Where your money is, there your heart will be also. And if you and I do not put our heart towards one another, towards the poor, towards those in our community of faith, towards our neighbor, our heart is never going to be there, right? Um, Generosity is an indicator light of our heart and grace is at the root of generosity. Look at verse 33 and you're going to see the word great used twice here. And look at how it's used. Look at these two greats. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Do you see the two greats there? Right? Great power is just how the apostles are described. This could be miracles, like it was in chapter 2. It could be uh, great power in their persuasion, or their conviction, or their ability to speak. We don't know. And honestly, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter because it's in the Bible, but none of us are apostles, so it's probably not something we need to apply. Don't worry about trying to live out of great power as an apostle because the last apostle died about 1,900 years ago. But the other great is something that's for all of us. You see that there in the passage, right? Great grace was upon them all. And if you're in Christ, it's on you as well. You're a person whose life, if you're a Christian, has been marked by great grace. I think we should name the, change the name of the church to Great Grace. That might, be, might not be the most humble. Um, but how much grace we need or we think we need determines how we treat our neighbor. Again, Jesus gave a parable about this, right? When we think we've only been forgiven a little, we're really stingy with our neighbor. We're quick to insist that they pay us back what we feel like we're owed by them. But when we've been forgiven much, when we see how great the grace is that God has given us, we're a lot more generous with our neighbor and with those around us. For the early church, great grace was upon them all, and that gospel of grace shapes how they treat one another. Whether you believe that you are participating in great grace is going to make all the difference in the world with whether you're tight-fisted or open-handed with those around you. If, you. if you believe that you deserve what you have, that you earned it, spiritually before God, financially before your neighbor, then you're going to be tight-fisted. And maybe a couple things will fall out if you feel like people meet your standard. Maybe you'll say, okay, you deserve it, you don't deserve it. You deserve it, you don't deserve it. But if you see yourself as a recipient of great grace, then the question of deserving gets off the table. Our church, uh, the primary way that we serve and love our neighbors is through our compassion partners and our partnerships with these wonderful organizations in our community that we support financially and we support with volunteers and we encourage you guys to be involved with. Things like the Long Beach Rescue Mission, Heart of the City Food Bank, Precious Land Preschool, and on and on. And we have them up here sometimes. We talk about them. And, and if you haven't heard about our compassion partners, then let me know. We got to do a better job messaging about them. But every once in a while, uh, we have to remind ourselves that one of our core tenets for our compassion partners is that we are people shaped by grace, and therefore we serve our neighbors with grace. That is, we are, we're not going to give in to the argument that we only help people who deserve our help, because we didn't deserve God's help, right? In our own sins and transgressions before a holy God, we didn't deserve for him to send his son to die on the cross for our sins. We don't deserve for him to make us alive again in Christ. So if you're ever feeling like, hey, Bob, some of these compassion partners are helping people that I don't think deserve it, I would say, yes, <laughs> I hope so, right? Our goal is not to just find the virtuous who need our help or deserve our help, but that we would be uh, ostentatious with how generous and gracious we are with our neighbors. Now, does that mean that we're foolish? Do we go around handing $100 bills to, to, to people on Skid Row? No, you know, we, we try to be wise about it, but we're, we're not looking just for those who deserve help. 
We're looking especially maybe how we can model God's grace in our lives towards those around us. Grace shapes our practice of generosity because we're co-recipients of God's grace together as a community. The result of this in verse 34 is the the idealizing of Deuteronomy 15 coming to practice. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and distributed it to each as any had need. Um, A quick word of grammar here. When it says, uh, as many as were owners of lands or houses, the plural there is not incidental. It seems, uh, based on the Greek, like this means people who owned multiple lands, multiple houses, were selling some of the excess that they had in order to meet the basic needs of their brothers and sisters in faith. This would be different than saying, go and sell the house that you're living in. This also helps make sense of the rest of Acts, because as you turn the pages and you read the rest of Acts, they're in people's homes all the time. And you think, I thought they all sold their homes. Where did this home come from? It seems like they were selling second homes, third homes. They were selling a property they owned, those sorts of things. Does that mean you have, someone after last service means, said, does that mean I have to sell my house in Lake Arrowhead? And I laughed and said no, and then I thought, maybe. I mean, not you have to. You don't have to do anything. Uh, But that's the model that we see here in the early church, right? The people are, in the words of John the Baptist from the beginning of the Gospels, the one who has two cloaks, give to the one who has none, right? Giving out of what we don't need to those who uh, have what they do need. Again, that's different than saying, give up what you have for another, which... We can all make that choice, but that's not what's being described here. All right, I've been talking a lot to those of you guys. uh, Maybe this is the Seal Beach part of it. I've been talking a lot about generosity from the lens of assuming that we have something to give and that we have something to to share with others and to be generous with others. But I think there's something in this passage to turn around and look at the other way. Because I imagine in this room, there are probably some people who don't have much to give. And they feel like they're often on the other side of receiving from others. And I think it's worth thinking about what it means to be great, a recipient of great grace from that lens as well. If you are a recipient of great grace from God, it means you can never be poor. I don't mean it doesn't mean you can't live below the poverty line. I don't mean it means you never have wick. I, I don't mean that kind of poverty. I mean, before God, if you're a recipient of great grace, then you are a recipient of all that you need for life and godliness for eternity. That's why James wrote in James 1, Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. Similarly, in Matthew 6, Jesus talks about how all of us are cared for by a holy God, and that changes how we see ourselves. He says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? Uh, whether, again, in this room, there's such a diversity of life experiences and even situations right now. And so I just want to say, if you're someone who feels like, I don't have enough to get by, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills this week, I don't know how I'm going to eat today, um, you are part of this community too. And if you have chosen to follow Christ, you have something deeply uh, to be proud of in Christ, and you have something to give to this community. It may not be financial, but you've been given a gift from God, and you matter here, and you're important here. And we want to help you, even as you help us, to experience God. We also have a caring fund. So if uh, you need some help trying to figure out how to pay for food, pay for uh, necessities in life, talk to one of our pastors and we can help you figure out the caring fund as well. All right. Well, what can we learn about the sacrificial giving of these early Christians? 
Um, you know, it says in here that they, they sold what they had and they laid it at the apostles' feet. How do we actually do that? How do we apply that to our life? I mentioned the last apostle died probably 1,900 years ago. Uh, please don't put anything at my feet. I'm not an apostle. Uh, and if you see someone on TV or the internet who says they're an apostle and you should lay things at their feet, turn it off, throw the TV out the window, um, maybe toilet paper their house, but I didn't tell you to do that. Um, but I do think there are probably some principles in this that are worth thinking about today, right? I think the first one is the intentionality of it, right? The, the idea that you would sell what you had and, and give it over to another requires an intentionality versus a guilt-induced giving. All throughout scripture, we see this model that, that the truly generous heart is not just reactive to the situations that they encounter, but that they're proactive and they find ways to be generous with people around them. In the Old Testament, this is the principle of tithing, of setting aside a tenth of your crops and giving them back to God, and as well as another 10% to give to the poor. Obviously, we're not in the Old Testament today, um, and we have a whole taxation system that they didn't have, and there's a lot of other things to consider. And so I'm not trying to construct a, a, some sort of legalistic standard, but I would say that, that all of us, if we want to generous, live a generous life, can't just go around and, and wait for something to move our hearts and shake out a couple coins from our pocket, we need to be proactive in thinking about what would it mean to live a generous life and move in that direction. I'll just say, honestly, at our church, one of the uh, expectations for being an elder is that you would tithe. And so that's, that's what our elders do. That's what I do. Uh, that's what our family does. That's not a legalistic standard, but I found it really helpful because uh, without some plan for being generous, I find my heart becomes a lot more closed off to giving to others. Secondly, I think that the practice of, of laying it at the apostles' feet is helpful for us to think about today because it, it shows a little bit of an arm's length and trust in, the, in others to be able to give better than ourselves. That's one of the things that's really valuable about helping to give, whether it's through the Caring Fund or through our compassion partners to the poor, is we can say someone might know more than we do about who's in need and, and we can entrust some of our resources to them to help others. And sometimes it's helpful for people to know directly who gave them, and sometimes it's helpful for it to be anonymous. And, you, and through giving it to the apostles and the apostles read Shabini it, it could really help with that anonymity factor as well. The truth is, a lot of us, um, as you look at, at church history, as you look at, at society today, a lot of us want pats on the back for being generous. We want to be congratulated for what we give. In fact, we'll see that in the next chapter in Acts 5. Ananias and Sapphira try to pretend like they're, more be, they're being more generous than they are. And anonymous giving, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, to use Jesus' phrase, helps us bring up the question of, is this for others to see or just a matter of worship between me and God? All right, uh, well, we're almost out of time, but I do want to finish here uh, with Barnabas because he sort of brings what's a, a social activity down into one person's story here in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So why tell this story? Like, what, you know, why does Luke include this story of Barnabas doing the same thing that he's talked about everyone else doing? Well, I think some of it's foreshadowing. Barnabas is going to end up being a major figure in Acts and an important figure. But also it shows if, that if anyone had sort of an excuse not to do this, it'd be Barnabas. What do we know about Barnabas from this passage? Well, he's a Levite, which means by heritage, they didn't inherit land. So whoever, however this land got into his family, someone earned it and deserved it, and yet he's free to give it up. Secondly, he's a foreigner. He's, he's from Cyprus. He's not from Jerusalem. And uh, the, 
expectation would be that the Jerusalem church should be the hospitable ones. Uh, My point is that Barnabas isn't being ruled by the rules, but he's being ruled by grace and generosity. This may be why they saw him as such a source of encouragement. And if you know Barnabas' story, he'd be this source of encouragement for others. Uh, And it would always be through the lens of grace, right? uh, when, When Saul gets confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, it's Barnabas who advocates for him and brings him into the community when everyone else says, I don't trust that guy. It's Barnabas who will take Saul and bring him uh, to Antioch and to advocate for him as an elder in their church for the first time. It's Barnabas who will actually end up having a confrontation with Saul about giving Mark a second chance. Barnabas is a man whose life is ruled by generosity, or is marked by grace, and it begins with this act of generosity. He's someone who's not defined by what he deserves, what others deserve, but, but, but rather by grace and what he can do for others. In that sense, I think Barnabas is probably a hero of Luke's. That's why he's painted in such a positive light. And I hope a hero of yours and of mine, because I want that sort of life for you and for me, that we'd be people who are marked by grace and we would treat others not just how they deserve, but much more radically than that, by how God has treated us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. A couple questions for you as we close here. Um, who are you living a life in common with? Who are you living life in common with? By that, I don't mean who else is a 41-year-old dad of three kids, right? That's my story. Um, I don't mean that sort of common life. I mean, whose life goes up and down in the same way that your life goes up and down? Who are you linked with? Whose welfare is linked to your welfare and vice versa? Who are you living in common life with? Now, it could be a spouse. I I would assume, if you're married, I assume it's your spouse. Uh, If if you and your spouse don't even go up and down together, it's going to be pretty tough. Um, It may be a couple other people than that. But who else's welfare goes up and down based on yours? Who are you in in common life with? And the second question for you to reflect on and pray about this week uh, is who could you widen that circle to include? You know, it's pretty overwhelming as a Christian today to think about you know, by some sociological estimates, there's two to three billion Christians in the world. Even if you want to narrow that to just evangelical Protestants, there's probably 800 million evangelical Protestants around the world. What does it mean to, to live with one heart and one soul with 800 million or three billion people or eight billion people around the world? Um, so instead of thinking the wide angle lens, let's think of the narrow, lingle, narrow lens. Who could you widen that circle to include? So that you say, I, I want to, I maybe can't even live in, in common life with 500 members and attenders of this church, but, but I can with one person or with a couple people. I can include my resources and their resources to bless one another and, and to have our ships linked together in a more meaningful way going forward. Okay, other question I wanted to ask you or I want to encourage you to ask God is as you listen to this passage, this passage that, that is pretty idealistic, no doubt, and it, it paints a picture that... Um, has a lot of optimism and a lot of hope to it, uh, what longing or desire kind of comes up in your heart here? Before you sort of crowd that out with, well, that wouldn't work, or people wouldn't want to do that with me, or I'm too messed up for for that to happen, or I don't think that could work today, or or whatever sort of objections kind of clouded out. Before you get to those, what longing or desire has God brought up there? Maybe it's a longing or a desire to to have significance, uh, to be part of someone else's story in such a meaningful way. Maybe it's a desire to to be seen and cared for in the way that the early church was seen and cared for. 
I don't know what it is for you, but what longing or desire do you sort of notice that comes up as you read this passage? I encourage you to pray through that with God and talk through, before you get to solutions and before you reject them as implausible, what longing or desire has God sort of brought up as you read this passage? Well, my hope uh, as, as we look at this scripture together, this beautiful scripture together, uh, is that you and I would live generous lives, not, not so that you give the church more money, but so that you have a generous life, a heart that is shaped by God's grace at work in you, that you wouldn't be quick to say mine, mine, but that you'd be more quick to say ours, right? That, that we care for one another and that we love one another, even as God has loved us. Let's close our time in prayer. God, I'm so grateful for the ways that uh, many of the people in this church have shaped my view of generosity and of grace. I'm grateful for the way that they have encouraged me and helped me see the beauty that comes uh, from, from tying our well-being to one another. God, I know that there are things that we are going to disagree about when it comes to money. There are things that we're going to see differently. There are things that we're going to be frustrated about. Uh, God, help us to never lose sight of the fact that we are loved by you, not because we deserve it, but because you have chosen to love us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Never let us lose sight of the gospel or the way that that reshapes us. Help us to be quick to forgive, quick to be patient with one another, and quick to be generous with one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.